Well, good morning, fellowship. It is very good to be with you. Please open in your Bibles to Revelation chapter 2. Our text this morning will be verses 1 through 7. And you might not know that we'll be reading the other letter to the Ephesians, not the one that Paul wrote in around 60 AD, but this is one directly from Jesus in heaven. And John receives this letter when he is on the Isle of Patmos uh, in around the 90s AD. So again, our text this morning is Revelation 2, verses 1 through 7. Hear long as I read the word of God. To the angel of the church in Ephesus write, The words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks among the seven golden lampstands. I know your works, your toil and your patient endurance, and how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and found them to be false. I know you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my namesake, and you have not grown weary. But I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love you had at first. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent, and do the works you did at first. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place, unless you repent. Yet, this you have, you hate the works of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. Let's pray for God's help this morning. Father, we have sung of your grace and we have sung of our love for your word. And we ask that you would make your word effectual this morning that you would bless us as we listen to this sermon. It's in Jesus Christ we pray. Amen. Have you ever had to tell someone something really difficult? Well, for me, I've been on the receiving end of that, and it was during a performance review. So I was a summer intern at a church, and I was working in the youth ministry with the middle school boys, and um, it was midway through the summer, so my uh, supervisors, Nate and Chelsea, thought it'd be a good time to bring me into their office and tell me how things were going. So they opened the door, they invited me in, and then they both sat down and invited me to sit opposite them. And got to say, Nate and Chelsea are very kind people, but I was a little scared, a little terrified. But they started off with some very good feedback. They had told me many things that I had been doing well at the first half of that summer. But as a few minutes passed, started reading their body language, and I could tell that they were running out of steam. It appeared that the bad news was coming. And indeed it was. I don't know whether they had some sort of agreed-upon signal, whether a little nod of the head or a little foot tap or something, but... When Nate next opened his mouth, I could tell it was coming. And it did. Harris, we've noticed that whenever there's been downtime in the office, you've been spending it on yourself. So for the rest of this summer, we we really encourage you to 
you know, serve the other interns or to, you know, help around the church more. Ouch. Ouch. Harris, you're being selfish. And they were right. And that reproof, it hurt. But I could take it. And the reason I could is because when they gave that correction, I could see that it pained them to do so. I could tell that they said it not because they wanted to just ground me into the ground. No, they they did it because they loved me. I benefited from their correction. There aren't many people who will tell us our sins, who will lovingly correct us for our good. But they were that good. And Jesus is that good. Our scripture this morning is a performance review for the Ephesian church. But if we have eyes to see it, both in its tone and in its content, Jesus' goodness to this church, Jesus' love for this church, is in every single word. So in looking at this letter, we're going to look at Jesus' goodness to us. And so this morning is going to be a very, very simple sermon. We're just going to meditate on Jesus' goodness to us. And that should spur us to love him more. So how is Jesus good to us? Three ways. First, the goodness in correcting us. Second, his goodness in encouraging us. And third, his goodness in making promises to us. So first, let's look at the goodness of Jesus in correcting us. Look back at verses 4 and 5 with me. But I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love you had at first. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent and do the works you did at first. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. So to see Jesus' goodness in correcting us, I want us to look at two things about this Ephesian church. And the first is the start of the church and then where they've fallen or maybe their state of sin. So let's look at the start of this church. Jesus tells them, look at verse 5, remember from where you have fallen. So where'd they fall from? How did the church start out? Well, they started out with amazing leadership. We learn in Acts 18 that Aquila and Priscilla started this church in around 55 AD, and they were looking for some pulpit supply, so they, uh, they got Paul, you know, that guy. Uh, they got him to do some pulpit supply for them at the beginning, and then he went to go do some missionary stuff, and then he decided that, you know, he would just stay and pastor there for a few years. And so for the first two to three years of this church, there were a cultural influence. I mean, we learn in Acts 19 that so many people were coming to Christ that the idol makers were losing some significant business. So this church was really thriving. And after those two to three years, Paul had to go do missionary stuff again. So they called their next senior pastor, none other than Timothy, the one with two inspired letters about how to run this church. So we don't know for how long Timothy pastored there, but, you know, we learn in 
1 Timothy, then he's a relatively young guy and probably takes over at 60. So I don't know how long is the average pastor in the first century. Couldn't tell you. We'll say 20 or 30 years. So we'll say from 55 AD about to 85 or 90, this church had Paul and Timothy as their first two senior pastors. It's like Billy Graham and John MacArthur. That's, it's not, that's not too bad right there, is it? But by the time John receives this letter from Jesus in Revelation, which is around 95 AD, stuff had really started to go sideways. So let's look at the state of sin that this church is now in. We've seen that Jesus had blessed this church greatly for its first 30 or 40 years. He'd given them faithful pastors who taught them the word, who shepherded them, who shepherded them. And the people walked in faith and love. But at some point, that love started to, to dwindle. We don't know why. Maybe it's because Timothy had to retire and they had to get a new pastor. Maybe that new pastor was divisive. Or maybe the new pastor just walked into a hornet's nest. The people just, they're just grown infighting. We're not really sure what had happened. Betting it's probably a gradual decline. Could have been major sin. We don't, we truly don't know. But we know that at the time that they received this letter, they are a loveless church. And so Jesus does something very, very gracious to this church. He gives them the courtesy of telling them that they are in great sin. And he does so in extremely plain language. Look at verse 4. You have abandoned the love you had at first. That is devastating reproof. I mean, to tell a church that they've stopped loving is to tell them that they're basically not even Christian anymore. I mean, what are the two greatest commandments, right? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. And a second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. So for all the endurance that Jesus has commended them for, he tells them in the plainest language possible that they are 0 for 2 in Christian living. As Paul says in 1 Corinthians 13, they have not love, so they are nothing. Now at this point you're probably wondering, ah, gosh, this is, this is heavy. I thought this sermon was about the goodness of Jesus to us. You know, how on earth does such offensive reproof show Jesus' goodness to us? Well, you know, a pastor, we'll call him Jim, and uh, Jim is self-admittedly overweight. And, uh, you know, he said he's working on it, and I believe him. But he tells of a time when he went to the doctor, and this doctor pages through some charts on his clipboard and took his vitals and... He looks at Jim and he mutters something like, well, Jim, uh, we're uh, going to have to keep an eye on that blood pressure. And then he muttered a few things and sort of looked around. He didn't really make eye contact at Jim. And 
Meanwhile, Jim's just sitting there. He's thinking, you know, I wonder if this, this doctor is going to have the, the courage to just tell me that I'm fat and that I need to lose weight. But no, he didn't. He didn't want to offend Jim. Never mind that Jim had a medical problem that could have landed him in the grave. At least he'd go there unoffended, right? No, that is a bad doctor. Doctors are supposed to tell you what's wrong for your good, not their own comfort level. And Jesus is called the great physician for a reason. Because he tells us when we sin. He tells us when we've gone wrong. How does he do that? Well, he brings it from his word. He brings it through preaching. He uses trials to help us examine our lives. Sending perhaps reproof for some sin. And sometimes he does it by sending really courageous people in our lives. Who are just going to tell us. Brother, sister, you've got to repent here. So we should truly thank Jesus when he brings conviction of sin to us. We should ask Jesus that he would continue to bring conviction of sin in our lives. It's by repentance that we can start to be healed. And whenever we get one of those rare people who are actually going to confront us, should not only thank the Lord, should thank them. I mean, if, if you and I know how hard it is to tell someone that they really need to repent, that they're in a bad way, then we should thank them for loving us that well. Thank you, brother. Thank you, sister. You know, it's that proverb that says, faithful are the wounds of a friend, but profuse are the kisses of an enemy. So Jesus wounds us for our good, but he wounds us. It hurts. But just as he wounds, so he heals. He's the good physician. He restores us to health. How does he do that? does it through encouraging us. So first we've seen his goodness in correcting us. Now I want us to look at his goodness in encouraging us. Let's look at verses 2 and 3 and 6 again. I know your works, your toil, and your patient endurance, and how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and have found them to be false. I know you are enduring Patiently, and bearing up for my name's sake, and you have not grown weary. Down to verse 6. Yet this you have, you hate the works of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. I want us to look at two things in this medicine, this encouragement. I want us to look at how Jesus gives this encouragement, and then what he actually says in it. It's the manner he gives it and then the content. So let's look at the how. How he gives them this encouragement. So we saw in our first big point that Jesus gave this church a big old dose of medicine 
that did not taste good at all. And at first, it really didn't make them feel good either. Ephesians, 0 for 2, loveless. But did you notice how Jesus gave them that medicine? He wrapped it in bacon. What do I mean? You know, when you give your dog medicine, you could pry its jaws open to your own peril and shove that pill down its throat, or you could be smart and wrap it in some bacon. Or, what we used to do, just put it in a spoonful of peanut butter. And they're this the rest of the day. It's maybe a little cruel, but whatever. That's besides the point. Well, this is what Jesus does, maybe with bacon, not peanut butter. Um, but look at how he gives the medicine. Verses 2 and 3, that's encouragement. And then verses 4 and 5, strong medicine. And then in verse 6, he gives an encouragement again. So it goes encouragement, correction, encouragement. Now, why does he do this? I mean, surely Jesus could have been unremittingly stern with this church. And they truly might have deserved it. Could have just given them the correction in verses 4 and 5. Could have listed sin after sin after sin. But Jesus loves this church. He loves them enough to strongly rebuke them, to strongly correct them when they're wrong. But he also has regard for their weakness. Jesus knew that if he had just given so strong a rebuke without any encouragement, sure, he could have gotten his point across, but he could have broken their spirits. So Jesus wrapped this rebuke in encouragement lest they be consumed with excessive sorrow. I mean, this is what Isaiah says of Jesus, right? Of the Christ to come, behold my servant whom I have chosen, my beloved with whom my soul is well pleased. A bruised reed he will not break, and a smoldering wick he will not quench. So that's how Jesus gives this encouragement. That's his heart towards this church. Now let's look at what he actually says. Jesus says that he knows two things about this church. They've endured suffering for his name, and they've fought for the truth. And when Jesus says, I know, it's implied that he knows what they're doing for him, and that he accepts them for it. And think of Psalm 139. That famous one. You know, that's the the God knows me and is with me psalm. You know, David there, he derives great comfort from that God knows him. From that God knows all his thoughts. From that God knows where he is, his sitting down and his rising up. Because he also knows that God accepts him. So... Jesus saying, I know to this Ephesian church, I know you're enduring for my name. I know your zeal for truth. That should have probably actually given them both great pause and great comfort. Why do I say great pause? Because Jesus Christ, the ascended Son of God, 
exalted in heaven, the one who both foreordained all things and therefore who knows all things, surely he sees their endurance and their zeal for truth and he still sees every imperfection with it. He still sees all their weaknesses. I mean, if they were so loveless, if, you know, if Jesus could just characterize this church as being loveless, is it not probably the case that they were also loveless when they were enduring, just gritting their teeth? Is it also not likely that they were loveless when they were so zealous for the truth? So that's the great pause. But Jesus' omniscience should also have given them great comfort because Jesus saw all of those imperfections. He saw all of their weaknesses. And he said, you know what, Ephesians? Keep it up. You are doing a great job. Keep enduring for my name. Keep fighting for the truth. I am proud of you. Though he knew their faults and their sins, he chose to see the genuine, even if imperfect, obedience. And he chose to encourage them for it. I remember watching SEC football game. Alabama was on the road. They were the number one team. And, you know, they were projected to beat this team by, I don't know, two or three touchdowns and it wasn't going that way for them. They had a 21-3 lead, and they just were blowing the game. They were racking up tons of penalties. Their offense was a mess. And it came down to the final few minutes, and they just barely won the game. Should have won by many, many touchdowns. So the, the camera follows the head coach after the game, and he's going to the to the tunnel with his players. He's going to join them. And one reporter, can't remember who it was, but he turns and looks at the other. It's Brad Nestler. And he says, so Brad, what do you think he's going to do when he gets into that locker room? Think he's going to chew him out? Think he's going to, you know, tell him that they've got to cut out these penalties? Think he's going to chew out the offensive line for not blocking? And Brad turns to him and he says, you know what? Tonight, no. He's going to look at that team, and he's going to encourage them. He's going to encourage them for playing so tough, for fighting so hard. And that's what Jesus does for us. He looks at our imperfect obedience. He sees all of our faults, all of our sins. He sees us inching towards righteousness, and he still says, great job. Keep going forward. He sees our fights against sin and he says, keep on fighting. Stay in the ring. He knows our attempts at loving others and he says, way to go. He knows all of our imperfections and he loves us still the same. Why is this? It's not because our good works are unspotted. It's not because our zeal for him is constant. It's not because we hunger and thirst for righteousness with all of our being. 
No, it's not in us. It's in him. It's simply because he has chosen to unite himself to us. It is simply because he loves his disciples. It's simply because he won't quench a faintly burning wick. So Jesus is good to encourage us to have mercy on our faulty, imperfect works. And yet, I think we can maybe see his goodness when we look to the future. When we look at the promises that he has made to us, I think that might show us his goodness to us most of all. So let's look at Jesus' goodness in making promises to us. Let's read verse 7 again. He who has an ear... Let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. So to help us see just how great that promise was, I want us to look at two contrasts. I want us to look at two contrasting rewards and two contrasting ways to get those rewards, or maybe two consequences and two systems of merit. So first, let's look at those two consequences. Jesus makes this promise in verse 7 to the one who conquers, to the one who overcomes these temptations. And in context to the Ephesian church, the one who conquers is the one who repents, the one who remembers from where he has fallen, the one who puts on love. And what does he promise to those who conquer? He promises them the reward of eternal life. And that is a promise that should never cease to amaze us. He promises them the tree of life, complete holiness, Full freedom from sin, from death, from pain, forever. No more mourning, no more crying, no more tears anymore. That's, and then he promises the paradise of God. They'll be made fully blessed in the full enjoying of God forever. Jesus promises them eternal life. That is the first consequence. That's the good one. The next one is the bad one. Jesus makes very clear that sin has consequences, both in this life and that which is to come. So what are the consequences in this life? Look at verse 5. He tells this church, if you don't repent, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place. He's going to come and he's going to shut the church down. That's what's going to happen if they don't repent. But of course, the the ultimate consequences for sin is eternal punishment. If they continue in their lovelessness, they will be judged for their sin. That's clear from the entire Bible, Matthew 25, but especially later in this book, But it's here, too, because Jesus makes this promise of eternal life to the one who conquers. That means 
If you don't conquer, then you will receive the opposite punishment, the opposite consequence. So there are two very stark consequences in this chapter. Simply put, they're heaven and they're hell. But there are two different ways of getting those consequences. There are two different systems of merit. The first one, the way to hell, is the way of justice. In Bible language, it's Romans 6.23. The wages of sin is death. Sin deserves death. Injustice is giving each person what they deserve. So for those who are in sin, what justice is, is giving them death. Now, a lot of us have trouble with this doctrine. Why does it have to be forever? It is justice. It is eternal punishment is justice. This is the language of the Westminster Larger Catechism, question 152. What doth every sin deserve at the hands of God? And it's going to say that every sin is against his character and against his law. Every sin, even the least, being against the sovereignty, goodness, and holiness of God, and against his righteous law, deserveth his wrath and curse, both in this life and that which is to come and cannot be expiated but by the blood of Christ. So the way to hell is getting what you deserve. But what about the way to heaven? How does Jesus tell these Ephesians to get there? Now, to the un- untrained eye, it might be good works. You might say to me, well, well, look at the text. It says to the one who conquers. Says to the to the one who repents, to the one who starts loving God and his neighbor. It's if they conquer, it's if they repent. So it it must be all based on what they do, right? And of course the answer is no. Because the reward, the consequence, is eternal life. Now, if the consequence is eternal life, then what must the payment be must be eternal righteousness, and it must be spotless righteousness. But no believer has eternal righteousness. No believer has spotless merit. And even if we did, God would not owe us a thing. We are his creatures. He's God. We have, I mean, By being creatures, we have to serve him. We owe God our obedience, and he doesn't owe us anything in return. Jesus says this in Luke 17. When you have done all that you were commanded, say this. We are unworthy servants. We have only done what was our duty. So why eternal life? It's not because of our works, the way to heaven is not through us. The way to heaven is through Christ. It's Christ who has fulfilled eternal righteousness. It's Christ who has been crowned with eternal life. 
and it is his to give to whom he will. And Jesus promises, if you conquer, if you have faith in me, I will give you eternal life, eternal blessedness. And I, I really want us to just ask the question, why is it eternal? Jesus could have given us a few decades in heaven. And that would have been more than we could have ever, ever dreamed of. He could have, he could have made it shorter, or he could, have, he could have made us work just a little bit for it. I mean, if we're talking about eternal life, eternal happiness, certainly he could have, you know, just put us in a holding tank and made us earn heaven points for, you know, a couple decades or maybe a couple centuries. I mean, who wouldn't take that trade off, right? Just a, what's 10 or 20 or 200 years in purgatory for never ending life. So why is it eternal life? It's because God is love. For some reason, in God and not in us, he chose to send his son into the world. And he chose to redeem his church. To bring his people to life. First in saving us and later to raise us to eternal life. And so he calls us to trust in Christ, to trust in his work, to know that eternal righteousness is ours in him. So Jesus' goodness to us is everywhere, if we have eyes to see it. He's good in correcting us. He's good in building us up through his words. And if you belong to him, then by his sheer grace, he has shown you his goodness in promising what the heart of man cannot begin to imagine. So if Jesus is going to be so good to believers on that last day when he raises us up to eternal life, surely his goodness is before us now. Can you see it? Let's pray. Father, we give great thanks for sending the Son. Please help us to walk in Him. Thank you for your grace. In Jesus we pray. Amen.